she's gone through so much and at your most vulnerable and you're feeling really rubbish, having to then completely strip just felt, it just jarred. And I thought, I'm sure there's something I can do about that. Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, founder of the Skylark Collective and the International Women's Podcast Awards. And each week, I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. My guest this week is an incredible woman whose life and career were turned upside down by circumstances. We often talk on this podcast about how the twists and turns of life shape the careers of women. But in the case of Victoria Jenkins, those circumstances were becoming disabled in her mid-twenties. Before becoming ill, Victoria was forging a successful career as a garment technologist, working in the fashion industry for the likes of Sweaty Betty, Jack Wills and Victoria Beckham, no less. She was doing well, and that's an understatement. But at the age of 26, her life became irrevocably different. I'll let her tell you her story in the podcast, but suffice to say, she ended up founding her own fashion company, Unhidden, to cater to people requiring adaptive clothing that's stylish, beautifully made, and affordable. Victoria is now an entrepreneur, business owner, disability advocate, and brand ambassador for Models of Diversity. She's a tour de force and Unhidden is an incredible company. If you're interested in learning more about the subjects we discuss in this podcast, I'd urge you to pop out and buy Victoria's book, The Little Book of Ableism. It's great. We started, as ever, talking about her early life as one of six kids. Uh, So I grew up in a tiny little village in Oxfordshire. Um, I am the second oldest of six children. And uh, originally I wanted to be a, a ballet dancer, actually. And I used to go, I went to dancing five nights a week and on Saturdays. You know, when you look back and just think, oh, God, I wish I had that energy now. <laughs> um, yeah. All the time. Yeah, every day. Um, but I went for a jog um, and broke my ankle in, when I was 15. So that kind of put paid to that career. But I had actually, my mum tells me that I said this, that I said to her when I was five, I'm either going to be a dancer or a designer. I have no idea if I actually knew what a designer was when I was five. I think it's highly unlikely. Um, But I did always love drawing. And I did like, I always used to draw dresses out and all sorts of things like that. So that's kind of, yeah, that's, that was growing up. Um, And then, yeah, came to London to study fashion design um, when I was 19. And I've been here ever since. (laughs) Amazing. I mean, you said you were one of six children. What was your kind of family ethos around careers and work and stuff like that? My dad owned his own company as a shop fitter. He actually had a lot to do with the the initial Bista Village. Um, he did a lot of the shop fitting for that. Um, but he did also, unfortunately, he was killed in a car crash in 2002. So that changed that changed a lot for a lot of us. Um and I think actually, had he still been around, I'm not sure I'd have been allowed to go and study fashion design. I think he kind of saw it as a bit of a, it's not a not a proper career. Um, but thankfully, I'm think pretty sure that I proved him wrong. <laughs> and uh, I know he'd be very, I know he'd be pleased with what I do now and proud of what I do now. So, and I think a lot of my entrepreneurial spirit kind of has come from him. Like he came from a dairy farm in Barry Island you know, and then sort of started a company and ended up building, you know, some incredible things. Um, so yeah, I think I get a lot of that kind of creative spark from him, I guess. Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry to hear that, but thank you for sharing. It sounds like your dad was an incredible guy, especially coming from a kind of farming background and building, you know, Bista Village is no mean feat of shop fittings. There's a lot of shops. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is a lot of shops. I mean, goodness, the original one was so like, it was like a proper village, whereas now, I yeah. mean, it feels like a bit like a town so now when you go there. And has, did your love of fashion um, 
come down through your family? Were, were you really into reading magazines? Where did your kind of interest in clothing and fashion come from, do you think? And, and how did that really become a passion as you grew up? I think it came probably from my grandma on my mum's side because she used to make us outfits, you know, when we were kids. I mean, she used to knit and it's still one thing that I've not learned to do. Um, <laughs> and I just, I can't. I somehow, I just seem to be really bad at knitting. Um, so I think it came from there. And then, I don't know, I think it was just that natural. I just always kind of was always drawn to people who I thought were beautifully dressed. And the I think the, the feeling of like good, feeling good in your own body and in your own skin and in your own clothes. So like, I used to do a lot of, I draw, you know, sort of for people that were not maybe traditionally represented in magazines, I kind of, I draw clothes and be like, well, why doesn't that look nice on them? What would look nice on them? Um, so there's always been a bit of an element of wanting to do bespoke design, um, which is funny enough. I mean, I did do some, I made wedding dresses. I think just after I graduated, I made a few wedding dresses and a few bridesmaid sets. And that was all I mean, that was actually, I did the patterns, I designed them and I sewed them. Um, I feel like my skills have slipped in that area since then. I don't <laughs> think I'd confidently sew a wedding dress now. So you came to London to study fashion. What was your kind of aspirations and what were your dreams when you were at college? Were you wanting to have, you know, a, a fashion house of your own or how did your kind of dreams develop as you went through? It's funny, you know, like I think initially my idea was, you know, I'll intern or work for someone else for a while and then I'll just become a designer. I don't think, I can't remember really sort of saying to myself, I'm going to have a brand. And I think that's because at university we have one teacher sort of said, um, you know, you'll either be a fashion designer or a clothes designer. Um, and although it was said with a bit of disdain on the clothes designer side of things, I kind of thought, but that's what I want to be. I want to design clothes that people are going to wear, not fashion as art even though I absolutely adore it and I think there's space for it um that's not what I wanted to do and then you know you kind of you just have the pressure of you have to get an internship then you have to get a job so at that time really I don't think I was thinking ahead more than just being able to stay in London being able to afford to do that so I interned for seven months with a really really creative designer um who's she's not she's not designing anymore but it was a really incredible experience um which I enjoyed a lot but obviously it's you know it's interning's unpaid and then my first paid job was as a pattern cutter for Godiva which is an online clothes company and I think I was there a couple of years and then sort of slowly absorbed garment tech into my day-to-day -day job and again it was just a case of just moving forward like I really I don't think at that point I had a plan um, other than just being able to earn enough money. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think that's kind of, I kind of, everything that's happened, it's just kind of happened in its own way. I think people talk about having plans in your career. And this is something that we talk about in this podcast from time to time. And I think it's, it's a really interesting dichotomy between those who think you should have a plan and those who have no plan whatsoever and, and I, I find it really interesting because I think different different women are different different people are different and actually you know you can have a plan that that doesn't come off or you can have no plan and end up with a more structured career than than you would expect and it's kind of interesting that you didn't really have a plan other than living hands to mouth getting your rent paid, et cetera, et cetera, in London, which is which is really hard when you're in your 20s. You know, London is such an expensive place to live. Um, and I just, I find it interesting when people talk about that because often people can be quite organized, quite focused, quite driven, quite ambitious, and yet still not have a really set plan, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I like to think some part of me was sort of just thinking, once I get to a point where I'm comfortable and financially definitely really safe, then maybe I'll start something. Um, but then I think, well, my health then decided to join a fund. So I think that was, um, yeah, I think, it, yeah, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever really believed I'd have the confidence to have my own company, which is now quite fun to look back on. Yeah. And, and actually that's a big thing, isn't it? And part of that comes with age, the confidence piece, but I'm, I'm always does, wowed yeah. by, by people who have started their own companies at a very young age, partly because I did not have the confidence to do that. <laughs> You know, I was all about somebody, please give me a job. Um, you know, but actually, I think having the balls to do that when you're in your early 20s or even younger in, in some cases. And I think it's amazing when people do it. I think, you know, amazing. that, la yeah, I think it's we need more people that do do that. I think it's amazing. But I just wonder whether actually we don't put enough focus on entrepreneurship at a young age because 
we're always thinking that you have to have the experience and the finances behind you, as as you just said, before you can go into thinking about starting your own company. Definitely. I mean, yeah, entrepreneurship is definitely not something I think I ever came across at school. And even actually like studying fashion design, there was no kind of practical, here's how you start a fashion company. You know, like it was just, you had to just know how to design and all the rest of it. There was no here's what running a company actually looks like. Mm. I think that's often true in so many ways because, you know, I'm a vet by background and you get taught how to be a vet, but a lot of vets are business owners and have no experience or yes. teaching and how yes, to be exactly. a business like owner. Have your own practice. Exactly. And I think that's the same whether whatever you do, you know, if you've done any kind of training in a in a vocation, whether you're a, a plumber or a, a, you know, a carpenter or a fashion designer or a vet, it, it doesn't really matter what you do. What you've got is technical and operational skill, but what you don't get any teaching in is how to write a budget <laughs> or how to forecast yes. for your year ahead or whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we'll come Definitely. on to all of that with um, picking up those business skills in a bit. But um, you just said in passing there that your health started to come into play uh, in your early 20s. For those who don't know your story, Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to you and and how your disability manifested itself in time? Yeah, of course. Um, So I think I'd had been having stomach um, issues probably, actually, funnily enough, immediately after graduating. Um, And I saw a multitude of doctors, most of whom were, you know, I guess through no fault of their own, relatively dismissive and just sort of either women's problems or IBS. And then when I was 26, um, I mean, friends were concerned, like I'd lost a lot of weight. I was really like I was I really didn't feel very well. Um, but there was, you know, I was just repeatedly told there was nothing wrong. And then I had uh, an ulcer that was undiagnosed in my stomach that burst, basically. And a cue, some life saving surgery, because, um, again, I have a really high pain threshold. So I didn't go to A&E for a couple of days um, the surgeon afterwards was like, yeah, next time you even feel a twinge, just go to any, um, which was quite amusing. I think bless him. So, um, yeah, so that, and then again, that I still kind of thought I'd get better. I don't think I was really prepared for that was actually going to be the beginning of other things being wrong. So, um, I have a paralyzed stomach now I've had surgery to sort of create a second exit from my stomach. Um, after having something like 15 endoscopies, they used to, put a balloon down to inflate the original opening and then freeze it open with Botox, um, which, you know, these all these incredible treatments that you never hear about. Um, and I've had my, you know, my gallbladder was diseased and removed, my appendix the same. Um, yeah, I think I've now got something like 10 diagnosed conditions, um, a twisted artery in my bowel. And basically there's just, you know, there's adhesions, there's a lot of bits of me stuck together. So, um, yeah, there's so it's kind of been... It's weird. It now it affects my mobility. It can be very painful to me to stand up for a really long time. And I only got a walking stick for the first time last January, and then we got put into lockdown anyway, so it didn't really, it didn't really matter. Um, but I've yeah got a new one now, and I had pain injections last July, but you can only have them once a year. Uh, so I've kind of like things started wearing off at the beginning of this year. So it's been another sort of I'd got used to having a bit more mobility again, and now it's sort of it's reducing, but you know, it's, I'm used to it. So I think I'm kind of generally mostly there. It's obviously, it's disappointing to me because I can't do everything that I physically want to do, but I think I managed to do quite a lot with what I do have. So hell yeah, I think you do. Swings swings (laughs) and roundabouts. (laughs) And I mean, actually the idea of being somebody who has been a very healthy person, full of life, very active, you know, very successful in everything that you've done how did you mentally cope with the changes that were occurring to you Victoria and and making that transition into not being able to do the things that you have always wanted or or done um I think it's especially with chronic health especially yeah coming from when you're not born with certain things um it's a bit of a roller coaster you know there's definitely been times where I'm fine with it and then there's other times when I haven't dealt so well and sort of dipped into some therapy or counseling because it was you know just sort of it's almost like a constant grief cycle of just sort of missing missing out on things Um, and sometimes you can go a long period of time without feeling that way and then other times it might just come back so a combination of that I think also it was only really uh, when I had the idea for Unhidden and 
during that sort of hospital stay and one previous to that, that I actually even considered that the word disabled might apply to me because, you know, it's not something my doctors ever said. Um, you know, they don't phone you up one day and say, welcome to the world's most rubbish club. Uh, <laughs> they just, you know, they just kind of let you define yourself as you are. Um, so I think actually that helped once I realised, like I think trying to fight against it and pretend that I was as well and able as everybody else um, physically once I stopped trying to do that I felt a lot better physically and mentally like I wasn't running myself ragged trying to keep up with everybody and being a bit more honest I suppose about actually what it was like to live in my body um, which made things a lot easier so I found it an awful lot easier the last sort of two years I would say I've really settled into it and feel a lot more comfortable with um, with my physical body and my mental health as well. And when that all kicked off you were obviously still working in the fashion industry at the time. You know, you've worked for some fairly punchy brands, Jack Wills, Sweaty Betty, Victoria Beckham, to name but a few. Um, How did you manage in the early days uh, before you began Unhidden on your own? Were you just doing the best you could or were your work kind of accommodating and open or how did you kind of manage your work health balance I suppose in the in the early days of of your condition Victoria yeah not I well I think not well is how I would describe I didn't manage it well in that I was so determined that it wasn't going to be a problem that I just you know worked I think all the harder really to kind of prove that it wasn't going to make a difference um and in the subsequent years I learned that I even though I would be quite upfront with new companies and say, you know, I have chronic health conditions, they're managed, but, you know, these X, Y, Z things, if we can make that happen, that will make it easier. And some companies were great about it. Some companies were not so great about it. Um, And I think that's just, you know, that's a lot to do with how we've perceived remote working, which thankfully in the last year has drastically changed. Um, But I think before then, yeah, it was, it was difficult trying to keep up with everybody I don't I don't feel that the work ever suffered it was always me like I think until I stopped fighting that was basically once I quit my last permanent role and went freelance I haven't had a year where I've had to then end up in hospital like usually almost once a year I'd have like a 10 day stay just because I was just completely spent you know it didn't always end in surgery or anything that was necessarily diagnosed it was just yeah a very very broken body and I haven't had that for the last 2 3 years now so I think deciding to like take charge and go freelance then I'd be in control of it a bit more and I could sort of say yes and no to things and determine my own hours that definitely helped me it's funny actually I think when I'd left one company that was a supplier and before I went to Jack Wills I kind of I was going to do you know in the in the time in between those two roles I was just going to do freelancing for you know for a month and then Jack Wills called me in early and then they just offered me a permanent contract and I loved it. So I stayed. So I technically had been open to the idea of going freelance before um, and then just sort of only did it for two weeks. And then, yeah. So when I made the decision, it was when I'd had, <laughs> it was when I'd had the idea for Unhidden, uh, but I was still working at Victoria Beckham. And I just thought I can't, there is no way I can work for somebody else and then go home and start a company unless I don't mind it taking 10 years. And yeah, so it just, the, the idea wouldn't leave me alone basically. And I thought, well, Let's give going freelance a try. And it was, I was very, very gratified that actually I was so busy for the initial two years that I still didn't have time to work on Unhidden because <laughs> I was working for other people so much. Um, so again, like the pandemic kind of gave me that gift of time, you know, with sort of clients, because I work with a lot of startups now. Um, with less of those and not being able to go anywhere, um, I physically have more energy and mentally have the headspace. So Unhidden's come on leaps and bounds since. And just before we come on to Unhidden, um, you were working or you are a garment technologist and that's what you're doing freelance. Just tell us, for those that don't know, Victoria, what is a garment technologist and what do you, <laughs> what do, you do? <laughs> it's funny because it's kind of low. I hadn't even heard of it when I graduated. I'd never heard of a garment tech. Um, it's kind of like being a clothes engineer. So my job would be, you know, the designer would design a T-shirt, for example, and then my job would be to make sure it was made to the standards of whatever company I was working at, that they'd use the right threads, they'd use the right fabric, that it measured correctly. And then we'd fit it on fit models uh, and any changes that needed to be made to the pattern would then be communicated to whoever was physically making it. And then we'd repeat that process until you seal it. So, And when you seal it, that means you've basically approved it for production. 
And invariably, I mean, less so with T-shirts, but generally like any one garment has to go through at least three fit sessions before you can approve it to production. Gosh. So, yeah. And that like fabric testing and wearer test trials and all sorts of like it's a really technical job. But it was I mean, it was super fun. I always used to really love fit sessions. They were great. Mm. it's basically like the kind of scientist behind the clothes it's like yes yeah it's amazing like some people like buyers would be sat there saying well you know this the unit cost is quite high so how can we have it look like this but make it cheaper but yeah that's very much and then also you know sort of someone saying well how can we make it last longer you know what can we do to improve the longevity of the garments so there's yeah there's a lot to do there's a lot with it it's amazing. It's so interesting. Absolutely fascinating. You mentioned a couple of times that you'd had the idea for Unhidden while you were still in other jobs. Where did the idea for the company come from, Victoria? Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of, of Unhidden and a little about of the company? Course. So um, I w- it was in 2016. Uh, I was in hospital again and um, on a ward with a woman, I mean, with three other women, but the woman in the opposite corner to me um, she, we were both the most mobile and we were both quite chatty. Um, so we sort of go and sit on each other's beds and so on, but she had two stomas, um, which are when you have your stomach sort of through your abdomen wall and um, to relieve waste. She had two of those cause she'd had ovarian cancer and the radiotherapy had basically ruined her bowels. Um, she also had a line in her arm, um, to get medicine and she was there to be fitted for one in her chest, um, sort of near her neck. And she just, you know, she, every time the doctors came around, she'd have to take everything off. You know, I know they had the screens up, but obviously I could hear them asking her that question. And we talked about it because she had so much going on. There was always about six doctors and mostly male. And, you know, I just thought she's gone through so much and you're most vulnerable and you're feeling really rubbish. Having to then completely strip just felt, it just jarred. And I thought, I'm sure there's something I can do about that. And then, you know, talking to her, she had, you know, she had a job, she works. You know, I think a lot of people assume that people with disabilities and with so much going on, they assume that people are just lying around in bed all day. And she was a very active woman, she, but she was restricted in what she could wear. You know, she had to be able to get to her own body without flashing it to everyone. So it was kind of T-shirts and trousers. No, no dresses would have worked for her. Um, and I, I mean, I was at the time, even though I would have benefited from, benefited from adaptive clothing, it hadn't crossed my mind. It just hadn't crossed my mind until... She said it. And then I thought, right, there's no way this is the first time this conversation has been had. So I'll, I'll Google it from my bed. And there was so little. There was so little. I was absolutely staggered that there wasn't more. And what there was was very much aimed at the elderly. There was nothing. I couldn't find anything other than Tommy Hilfiger, who um, had released his first range, actually the only the year before, um, with Mindy Shire, who owns Runway of Dreams, who actually... Um, I now speak to which is wonderful um, but yeah there were there was very little there's nothing aimed at young people obviously I mean in 2016 sustainability was still you know it was the last consideration as well for people and that is changing now um, but the the landscape still is is hardly any you know there's not very many adaptive brands the UK is probably behind um, certainly when it's, in America there's lots um, even New Zealand and Australia have more than the UK in terms of adaptive brands but um yeah it just it, the idea didn't leave me basically and I just kept thinking about it even though I really loved because my last permanent role was at Victoria Beckham and you know that's not the kind of opportunity or place that you want to work at it was amazing but I couldn't I knew I couldn't do both and I couldn't sleep thinking about Unhidden so I quit and went freelance and then you know, as I said I still didn't have the time <laughs> Um, but I do now. And it's, I mean, it's kind of been good because I've had that, that drive for it for so long. It means that even though I didn't necessarily have samples made, I was still researching, reading, seeing what's going on, seeing what changes are being made. And actually it's made it easier because now sustainability is a much bigger thing and it's a a lot more affordable, um, than when I first had the idea. So it is something that as a startup, I'm able to just from the ground up, build it sustainably, um, and yeah, with with much better technology and even, you know, even in terms of how we shop now, you know, a lot of it is online. So that's kind of having the not starting when I first had the idea has given me the time to really develop it. Mm. It really struck me when you were talking about your relationship 
with that lady in the hospital that when you're spending prolonged stays in hospital as you have done on many many occasions you must you must build friendships and have those kinds of conversations with people which are something that I've never really considered before to be quite honest Victoria have you kept in touch with that woman or are, you know are you I haven't I've, I haven't been able to find her number <laughs> okay I was gonna say does she know that she was no, like the kind of doesn't. trigger for your business no I keep trying to look through like you know how long do they save your messages for uh, I just know that her name was Pam you know um so that's, that's all I have to go on and I can't find it in my phone and I've obviously had a new phone since then but it is something you know some techie ever listening to this if there's a way I can find her name then amazing um but there are other people I've met in hospital since um and that I'm still in touch with I mean sometimes you're there and you're, you're feeling so unwell you don't tend to talk an awful lot but yes there are some people that I've met and stay in touch with I mean that's why the shoot actually last year was really incredible for me because that was the most time I'd been with people I mean I was the oldest person there but I, with people roughly my age but outside of hospital but all of us had something going on um so it was a really powerful moment just like we were all just smiling all day really you know it's because it was a positive moment rather than oh isn't everything awful <laughs> kind of in a hospital in a very dreary hospital it was it was a really powerful moment and on this podcast we I talk about digging into the how of it all so how did you get started? You know, we discussed earlier that you didn't have any background in fashion. Uh, sorry, you didn't have any background in business um, and certainly none in entrepreneurship or, or startups as a solo endeavor. Um, how did you how did you fund it? How did you get going? How did you know what you needed to be doing and actually get the company started at the beginning from really from a kernel, Victoria? Hmm. I mean, I think what helps is because my role in freelancing was to actually help get some startups from sketch to production. Ah. So I knew, I knew, <laughs> I knew that part. <laughs> so that was very, very helpful kind of, you know, and through working with people that, you know, maybe that was where they needed my help, but they, they knew how to do everything else. So it was a lot of listening and observing, um, you know, when they talked about investor rounds, I'd ask them questions like, what does that mean? What do you have to do with that? Um, social media planning, you know, how do you go about doing all of that? And then I also, I did, um, I realized basically that I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, so at the end of 2019, I booked on to do a course at the beginning of 2020, uh, which obviously ended up being very different, I think, to what they planned it on being. But it was a really like we're basically family now. So, um, yeah, it was I have done several courses since then. Now, if there's something I don't know, I'll find a course or I'll go to a webinar and I'll learn it. I think there's there's so many free resources out there as well. Like that's really helped. I did have, I do have to say, I did have, I do have two minority stakeholders who are friends of mine. And um, they'd actually, they came to me when I first had the idea. Somebody had mentioned it to them, probably me. I'm saying this, like they'd probably heard me talk about it. And one of them's a doctor and he'd said, you know, he wanted to sort of make scrubs a bit nicer. And then I said, well, why don't we also make an adaptive gown? And we spent years, we did that, we started with that. So we did spend two years trying to, you know, research that and work on that. And it just, for everything that we were seeing, you know, it, was, it wasn't affordable for the NHS. Um, so therefore, I, it didn't sit with any of us well that, you know, we'd have something so amazing that would be so out of reach for so many people that it wasn't necessarily needed. And actually, there, <laughs> ironically, um, after... Just about, I think about a month before um, lockdown was announced, I said that we were scrapping the medical wear because <laughs> uh, I didn't see didn't see a future in it. But I mean, I was right. You know, we didn't have manufacturing in place. We didn't have fabric fabric in place or funding in place. So, you know, we've never been, we wouldn't have been awarded a contract to make PPE and also it wouldn't have been profitable. So I was right. And it was confusing people. You know, whenever I said, oh, it's, you know, adaptive clothing, and we're doing scrubs. People thought I was only doing scrubs for people with disabilities. And a lot of people were like, well, are there that many of them? And I don't know how many disabled people there are within the NHS because there are there are plenty, but it's probably not enough to build a company on. So, yeah, so we sort of changed that. And once I've made that decision um, and I'd finished that course, like it's all it's all kind of gone from there. And a lot of it's trial and error. I've had to learn to let go of my ego when it comes to putting things out and being perfect like you know the first well, I think about the first Instagram post 
<laughs> look, at, look back on it now go oh bless me it looks like a school project um, <laughs> so but they're, they're fun to look back on you know but like the logo changed a few times uh, I mean so actually technically some of it setting up was very easy like getting a bank account and actually incorporating it that bit was easy I think the next challenge that we have or that well that I really have is um is getting funding but also marketing um I'm sure we'll come on to me talking about digital ableism but that is definitely something that is quite unique to what I'm doing as a problem but um yeah so I've had their support and my mum has also very kindly helped get us to this point now so everything so far has been quite bootstrapped but self-funded which I do recognize very lucky to have been able to do that. Yeah, I know. It's great. It's great. And actually, um, there's so much to pick up on. And I think, you know, the kind of investor rounds is a terrifying prospect for a lot of new business owners. And there are an awful lot of amazing entrepreneurs out there, but it's well known that it is harder for women to get funding. And it is probably even harder at getting funding in the disability space as well, because, you know, like you say, there's a lot of ableism in the world in general. Have you had any experience of that yet, Victoria? And how do you view that with regard to your company? Like, with, are you going to attack that in a particular way? Or what's your kind of views on all of that? I feel like it probably would have been harder. I think now with this massive um, emphasis on DE and I, I think actually Unhidden is quite attractive um, hmm. to investors, especially not just that want to invest in sustainability, but also in disability, but also disability owned business. Because um, there are, I mean, most people with, I say most actually, that's a huge sweeping generalization. A lot of people with disabilities end up being self-employed um, because it is just easier. You know, you, your boss isn't going to tell you off for being late. Um, or unwell or off sick or make you take holiday for sick days you know none of that happens so there's quite a lot of us and I think because we have to be quite creative in navigating this world we can think outside of the box and and, you know that applies to a lot of situations so it's quite a lot of good characteristics come out of it Um, so I think I'm quietly hopeful um, that we won't struggle too much I just haven't properly tried because the part that terrifies me is the maths side of things because I don't understand like you know and the acronyms as well like I don't know what all of these are I was talking to someone the other week and they they said something like a b c or something and it was like average bas- basket conversion and I was like I, I why are you talking to me about the alphabet I didn't know what they were going on about for you know it took me a while to realize I had to stop them and then ask them um so <laughs> it's yeah I, I don't like feeling tripped up or like I'm stupid I know I'm like I know that I'm not but it's yeah it's a difficult one um so that's kind of my focus for the end of this week is actually to get all the numbers because I have numbers coming out of my ears as well I think sometimes it's just I know that I've got all the data it's just putting it in a way that I can communicate it the best so yeah I'm quietly quietly confident will be okay I just yeah I just need to make sure I've got the maths correct sort of a bit like that kind of dragon's den scenario isn't it when they ask you for your numbers it's well that's kind of that's what I've put that's what I put in my head like if I was on dragon's den what would they what would they say to me what would they ask me do that like if I can comfortably answer those questions then anything else will be a lot easier is my is my logic Definitely. I do think I agree with you about the acronyms in business. And as somebody else who has started a small startup in the last 12 months, you know, getting to grips with the business side of things, if that is not your forte and the numbers and the finance and the forecasting and the business plan, and it's a big deal when you haven't done that before. And I think like you say, there's lots of courses you can go on, there's webinars, et cetera, et cetera. But it really does take time to learn all of that. And it's definitely something that I have found really hard. And I think it's so worth doing. And if you if you don't do it, you're fucked. But like you kind of need to... <laughs> That's the thing. It's kind of you don't have to do it forever, but you at least have to try so that when you get to the point of being able to appoint someone else to do the stuff you don't know how to do, then it's, you know, then at least you can still actually have a conversation with them. So what are you producing with regard to Unhidden now? Can you just tell people a little bit about the company's, you know, what your clothes are, who you're producing for and and what your kind of goals, I suppose, are with the company in the next year, three years, five years as well? Um, yeah, for sure. So we have <laughs> so many plans. Um, we, so we have five women's and five men's pieces. Um, they're all made from dead stock cloth. They're made to order. They're customizable and 
although we sort of carry, I think it's 11 sizes, we will make any size anybody needs. That's kind of the purpose. Um, But they cover a range of disabilities. So most of them, eight of them, are universally designed, which means anyone can wear them regardless of whether they have a disability or not. Um, And the the adaptations are discrete, so you're not going to notice that they're there. So it's, you know, it's not, in that sense, it's truly inclusive of every single body. Um, but two of the trousers for the men's and women, they are seated. So they are wheelchair specific. So that means, you know, you need a longer back um, rise, like the crotch seam, so that it doesn't dip. You know, trousers are not designed for sitting in. Uh, And then we remove all the excess from the front of the hip, behind the knee. You have to make them a bit longer because, you know, everyone's ankles are shown when you sit down. So these are naturally a bit longer. And then some of, you know, they they all have an elasticated back waistband. They can be pulled on. They have side entry as well. I am working. I mean, at the moment, they're invisible zips, which isn't great for dexterity. But the ones that are, are probably not suitable to be against your skin for a long period of time if you are a wheelchair user. So there's a lot of compromise that I'm still making. And it's kind of part of the plan is to start developing our own trims. Um, we have shirts that have, you can have either poppers um, or magnet fastenings, and that's to allow people to access their arm, especially for radiotherapy and chemotherapy patients. Like they don't have to take everything off. They can access their arm anyway, but it also helps people, um, you know, stroke patients or people that are, have cerebral palsy. They haven't got to spend hours and hours trying to do up buttons. They could literally, the shirt will do itself up. And then uh, quite a lot of it is also aimed at being quite stoma friendly, IBS, IBD. If you have catheters, um, if you have colostomy bags, like it's I'll try to answer as many things as I can within each garment. But obviously, I couldn't start with a 50 plus range, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, So we only have 10 garments for now. But yes, the plan is to expand the range to bring in some more color as well, because it's at the moment, it's just black and white, which is the easiest to restock in terms of dead stock. So when it comes to color, there might be really limited runs or things that we can only do once. But I think that kind of makes it nicer. It's a bit more exclusive that way. We did have a pop-up shop in May, which made us the first adaptive brand ever sold on Oxford Street. And there are some plans afoot to make that not necessarily a permanent thing, but to do that a bit more often and a bit more regularly so that, you know, more people have a chance to come in and look at the collection and that you know they'll be able to order it it's very exciting congratulations on being the yeah. first, on being Thanks. the first on oxford street i mean that is a big that's a big deal that's you know it's amazing it was it was and i know you've had quite a lot of press around everything you've been doing recently you've been featured in a lot of different publications and and you've been all over the shop victoria which is extremely exciting you mentioned a couple of times there using dead stock cloth what is what is that and how does that contribute to your, your sustainability and stuff yes I'm glad you asked that because I do tend to forget that obviously not everyone's in my head and therefore listening <laughs> to the rolling explanation of what things are so desktop cloth generally it, again it's been one of those things that's now also being abused by people in the industry but essentially what it is is leftover fabric from other companies that would otherwise either go to landfill or just sit in a warehouse for 10-20 years until the license that the existing company has on it expires so this is we only use fabric that's already been made so we're not we're not working with mills that are making new things um it's very much we're trying to keep everything to look to reduce our impact i mean there's we want to film workshops to teach people how to adapt their own clothes as well and also have a network of sewers that will do adaptive alterations which is something else i'm looking at at the moment um because yeah the fashion industry is a huge polluter and uh, the other, I mean, the other reason actually for really doing the adaptive alterations is that 80% of people with a disability aren't born with it. So that's an awful lot of clothes that suddenly someone can't wear. And I've met multiple people who, you know, overnight had an accident and couldn't wear certain things ever again and just had to get rid of the whole wardrobe. And all they could replace it with was jogging bottoms and pajamas. So, you know, the idea that if they, if people know that there is, a way of saving their clothes or you know because some people don't throw them out I mean that one of my brand ambassadors she was she was very excited because she hasn't thrown anything away <laughs> I was like well, I can't do like I can't do 30 years worth of clothes um but you know I am actually I am still adapting some of her stuff for her um so you know it's a way of sort of re reusing clothes and I mean the other part of it is as well is that people with disabilities don't want to be othered they don't want to have to go to a specialized shop you know while I think unhidden one day I do hope it will have its standalone store they deserve to be able to shop in the same places as everybody else so until those brands wake up to inclusive design 
at least they will have the option, hopefully by the end of the year, they can go and shop in New Look and Topshop and then they can pay a machinist to adapt those clothes for them so that they are actually wearable and comfortable. It's not a perfect way forward, but, you know, like I said, big brands aren't doing inclusive design and they've been so slow to pick it up. It's kind of, I feel like adaptive design is at the position that plus size fashion was at maybe five years ago. Like, I think we're quite a long way behind. And, you know, plus size fashion, I mean, that shouldn't even be a thing. It should just be fashion. Um, but that's still, you know, given that that's still not as mainstream as it should be, it's it's quite a long way that we're going to have to go still. But I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Just touching on that, we mentioned earlier about the kind of mental weight of a disability developing and, and what that can do to somebody's mental health. In addition, not being able to wear any of your beloved clothes ever again might seem like a trivial thing to some people but actually is huge you know if you said it's massive you're only going to be able to wear jogging bottoms and pajamas anybody who has ever loved dressing up ever is essentially being told that that needs to all be chucked out and I think it's not the sustainability and the environmental aspect of that is one thing but actually the the kind of emotional burden of that is something a little bit different and not to be underestimated, I imagine, Victoria. Definitely not. I mean, it's, you know, how we dress is our social identity, whether you care about what you put on your back or not. You know, some people are not, they're not that bothered, but that's probably because they can still, they can choose to wear whatever they like or whether they don't want to wear. So when you take away that basic human right, I mean, it really, it affects people. It affects, I mean, if you were a lawyer and suddenly all you can wear is pajamas, what are you going to do? You know, so it's usually the choices. Everyone's having to wear clothes that are painful, that don't work for them. Or, you know, slowly, little by little, they have to change how they dress. Like, that's the thing I hear the most is people have to, they've had to change their style um, and or just sort of, they just give up and don't don't even try and wear the things that they want to wear. And so much of your personality is tied up in your style as well, isn't it? It's actually... <laughs> exactly. It's, exactly. It's how we present to the world. And if you're not, if you don't allow people to do that, then it's a daily I mean just being able to put underwear on every day you know some people can't do that so then that kind of that shame and that embarrassment if they can't even do a simple thing like get dressed they can't even just put a pair of pants on and I, I just think you know in 2021 that shouldn't be the, the standard that should be the exception rather than the rule you mentioned there about big brands being slow on the uptake with this um, and we we mentioned earlier about digital ableism. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, Victoria? I know you're a brand ambassador for Models of Diversity. And actually, a previous um, guest on my podcast, Lisa Cox, who was on a couple of years ago now, um, oh. amazing, amazing woman, um, has definitely been yes, very involved is. in that space as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about digital ableism, what that means and, and, and the impact it has on not just your company, but the kind of but wider society as well? So, I mean, it covers a lot of things. I think it's, you know, we all talk about algorithms and things like that. But, you know, much as we've learned that some AI is quite racist, it's also sort of disabled. So if, I mean, the problem that we have had is if I, as a brand, if I post an image of um, someone in a wheelchair, it it won't be shown as much, like the reach is less. But also if you use medical terminology and or use the word disabled, Again, the reach is a bit less. And I think, and it's actually, it's not necessarily, I mean, it is a bad thing, but I think Facebook have obviously put in place, um, I don't know, some kind of code that will catch if you're trying to sell to people who have disabilities or have chronic health conditions. So I understand that they don't want people selling fake medicine, you know, like powdered rhino horn or something. They don't want people peddling medicines but what, they, what they're failing to wake up to and what they're really not listening to is that we're clothes. You know, it's a fashion brand. So, you know, if we can't, if, you, if you're reducing our reach, we're not um, sort of actively stopping us from running ads with that kind of imagery in unless we have a massive account and we have, you know, thousands that we're paying for a Facebook admin. It's very difficult for startup brands. And this is actually, this is a conversation that's been going on for a really long time. It's essentially, it's just, it catches any kind of disability, medical terminology, and this is across all platforms, including Google searches, and it just suppresses it or flags it or, you know, sticks a COVID thing on it because it doesn't know what it is. Um, 
And there's there's a lot of it about, and it's affecting so many brands. Uh, you know, if, quite a few of us globally have come together. I think there's something like 58 of us now actually on this one graphic, but there's many more that are talking about it as well. And it's, you know, some of these brands have actually been going for probably seven or eight years and their reach is nowhere, like nowhere near as big as it should be, given that what, you know, given the size of the disabled population, it's 1 billion people and growing. Um, it's something like 15% of the global population. Big brands aren't doing it and small brands that are doing it are still are kind of being hidden and sort of almost punished for trying to serve that community. And it's, you know, it, there's been lots of people talk about it over the last, I mean, there's been a few, there's been a few articles this year, but there's been multiple articles over the last few years. There's a lot, you know, I'm by no means the first person to call it out. Um, and I, you know, I'm so grateful that so many others, other adaptive brands around the world, are like we are a community. There's not, there's so, you know, there's quite a lot of us, but we actually do all talk to each other. Uh, which is really wonderful and quite different to the fashion industry. You know, there's not there's not that kind of competition because people with disabilities deserve choice and they don't have that. So that we, you know, I don't have very much ego around it. Like I'm quite happy for people with disabilities to know about all the other brands that there are because they deserve to be able to shop with an aesthetic that they like and Unhidden isn't going to be for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very sobering listening to that, isn't it? And actually AI, the internet and and new, and, and tech in general is great for so many people but if it doesn't serve you it serves you very poorly yeah I mean it's such a contradiction you know like because I I check I run my own advocacy page I use a lot of the same ideas um, but I'm because it's not a, you know I'm not trying to sell anything I have much greater reach so I have to end up having to share quite a lot of unhidden stuff on my page but then you know even then I still find that will drastically review sort of reduce even like story views so there is there is something somewhere that is catching and stopping that from being able to be shared. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's also I mean, it's, I'd say it happens work with brands. It's not great because it means that a small brand really struggles to grow. But I'd say people with disabilities showing their disabled bodies have it far worse. Like TikTok, thankfully, signed to the valuable 500, but they used to be the worst offender. Um, people were getting their accounts suspended weekly for showing their stoma. Um, and the reason they were given was that it was violent or graphic content um, uh, or disgusting, like the amount people just called people disgusting. Um, and like to see that has been really difficult. Instagram doesn't do it as much, but it does do it, especially, you know, a disabled body in lingerie, for example. There's some amazing influencers out there that are doing some incredible work and they get complaints. They get reported. They get, I think one of, only one of them has really had their account suspended. And that was only this week, actually. Um, and he does talk about sex and disability. And again, you know, if you want to really rile people up that don't want to hear about that, <laughs> talk about sex and disability and oh, people go off. And actually people and um, pe disabled parents like that. Those are two really difficult spaces to navigate. Um, but yeah, so th there's a lot of censorship and it covers a lot of different things. Um, and it just doesn't happen to the non-disabled population in the same way. It's a, such an important topic. Thank you very much for sharing all of that because I think it's something that able-bodied people probably do not know. And I think the extent of that problem and the you know the widespread nature of that suppression is not talked about enough. And I think I, I really thank you for for bringing that to the fore, Victoria, because I think it's a really important conversation to have. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, it's difficult. It's a difficult one. I mean, we don't you know we don't teach about ableism or um, anti-ableism, I should say. We don't really, we don't learn about disability. You know, even when you think about looking back to when I was at school and we studied history, we don't talk about disability. So a lot of these things are not going to cross anybody's mind until they're either thrust into the community or someone they know is indirect, you know, directly affected by it. So it's, you know, it's not anybody's fault. I have, I always sort of try and say to everybody that's non-disabled that gets, um, sort of feels you know guilty or apologizes for being ignorant it's literally no one's fault it is no one's fault because we're not we've never been in a position where we can unlearn it but you know once you know I think then you really have to really do a bit of work that's how I feel about it <laughs> definitely and if people want to know more about you your advocacy and obviously about Unhidden um, where can they find you where's the best place to follow you to see what you're up to and to hear all about your work 
Um, the website is unhiddenclothing.com. And actually, I have my own website as well, which is victoriaann.online. Uh, and I do actually, I wrote a book called The Little Book of Ableism, uh, which is available on Kindle and uh, a PDF version through our website and a hard book version as well um, to kind of really help the conversation along because a lot of people, you know, that I've spoken to, non-disabled, don't, you know, there's this real fear of saying something wrong. So they're saying nothing at all. And unfortunately, I think, you know, the time has passed now. Someone somewhere has got to start this conversation. So I made a really, really simple, very basic book. It's going to be a series. So this first one kind of it's really difficult to do a little book about ableism, um, which I discovered while writing it because I was doing the history of ableism and that was getting chapters long. And I was like, oh, this is meant to be a, like, honestly, a little book, like a guide, like just the basics. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a bit tongue in cheek. It's mostly kind, but it is, it's just, you know, it's a lot of data in there because I feel like people can't argue or get angry at facts. They are what they are. So there's that if anybody needs a push in the language direction as well. Absolutely. Um, Victoria Jenkins, author, advocate, <laughs> entrepreneur, general, all round <laughs> fantastic woman. Um, thank, you thank you so much. This has been a joy. Um, I always end the interview by just throwing the floor open to my guests to say, is there any piece of advice or anything that we haven't discussed that you would love to share with the people listening? Oh, that's an interesting one. I think I would share a tiny thing, and that is, I mean, I appreciate courses are really, really difficult, but if you can at least find a membership sort of space online or in real life, those have been, I found, sort of the most beneficial, you know, sort of having people that aren't friends, they're not family, they're in the same space, and probably learning at the same time as well, like to have that um, sort of to help hold you accountable, but also to bounce ideas off has been sort of almost priceless, really. I mean, because it is the thing, unless you've got a friend who's also got a small business, no one knows the sort of the weird ins and outs, the weird little things that might crop up that suddenly become a a huge emergency. Um, So I think to have a network of people that do understand and can also help, um, and might even just literally offer physical help um, is really, really good. And I did do before lockdown, I did, and they're now online, I did like a speed networking event um, I don't think from that first one, I'm actually still speaking to anybody there because I changed what I was doing, but it was really, really helpful. And it was terrifying. Don't get me wrong, like turning up somewhere <laughs> on my own to, to like to talk business when, when Unhidden wasn't even launched. Um, yeah, it, that was scary. But there's online versions now and they're a lot less scary um, <laughs> and they can really help. So yeah, that would be, that would be my advice. Um, but I appreciate like, I'm very lucky to have to develop the confidence over the last year mm. well you have and you are extremely um articulate and wonderful about talking about your both your brand and and a lot of the issues that go with that as well so um victoria thank you thank so you. so much for your time um it's been a real You're pleasure so to welcome. chat to you and um, i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you so much thank you naomi it's been great That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then do please tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the show on iTunes or give us a shout out on your own socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.